Okay, if uh, everyone will take their seats. So I, I told you uh, a bit about Gil, um, so I won't make it a long introduction so he can uh, have have time to, so you can hear him instead of me, but um, just want you to know if you haven't met Gil, that um, he's he's really one of the most respected and um, and uh, loved uh, of the Spirit Rock teachers and teachers in the Vipassana uh, community and in, in our lineage and any lineage. Uh, he's a, a a really brilliant scholar, uh, a Zen priest, as well as a Theravadan uh, Dharma teacher has a lineage a lineage holder in a number of different um different lineages and uh i'm happy to say a good friend too who always uh makes me happy when i see him um so please gil share the dharma uh oh <laughs> the um well, it's great to be sitting next to James again. It's been a few years since we've been on retreat together, and I love love James, and it's great to be, you know, sitting with you, and and I'd love to hear you instead. Can I pass it back? <laughs> the, um, so I have, um, you know, maybe you'll forgive me because that I have retreats on retreat centers on my mind these days. It's kind of a new kind of new to suddenly have this thing. It didn't just suddenly happen, but it feels that way, suddenly a retreat center to deal with. So I'm thinking a lot about retreats, and um, so I thought I'd talk a little bit about retreats. How many of you have sat an overnight silent retreat? So I'm talking to the converted. (laughs) How many of you sat an overnight Residential silent vipassana tree that's more than a week long. How many of you sat one that's longer than two weeks long? Impressive. <laughs> Maybe I should give this to them now. <laughs> so um, it was very sweet to sit with you here and feel the silence, uh, the 45 minutes we had together. And... Um, so for those of you who haven't been on retreat, if you notice the silence uh, and if it felt sweet, imagine that sweetness multiplied through a whole day and through many days all in a row. And it gets quite strong. And um, one of the great experiences in life is to come from outside of a silent residential retreat when you're not part of it, and like a 10-day like a retreat, come at the sixth day and walk into the room and there's a power there that's palpable. There's a stillness, a silence, a something, something kind of luminous or uh, electric almost in the that is more silent than if there was no one in the room, or it's more alive or more something special uh, about it. Because somehow, in a room full of people sitting and practicing, and one of the things that I see as a teacher of retreats, much more so than when I was. You know, before I was a teacher, and I was just a, the only person's mind I really knew when I was 
practicing on retreats as a student was my own mind. And, you know, it wasn't always so pretty or so easy. But as a teacher, what I see is all this goodness. And I feel so fortunate to have a, 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 this life where I can teach retreats and the best in people tends to come out. And sometimes people tell to come up to me and say, Gil, you know, I'm not always this way. <laughs> they they want to say, you know, you know, I'm, you know, you're getting with me on one side of me. And I know that. But, um, but to have a place where people have a chance to come forth uh, and try to be as honest as they can, to, to meet themselves as honestly as they can, and to work with what they see and try to not succumb to the forces of greed or hate or fear and try to, uh, rather, to come forth with courage and honesty and compassion, love, uh, a beautiful capacity to let go of what we hold on to tight. And to see people day after day engaged in this beautiful process, even when it's hard, I feel so fortunate to know people this way and to see how many people benefit from the kind of deep experience that can go on retreats. I see that there, there's five or six major functions I see of retreats. And maybe some of you who have been on retreats can add more or fill in or something. But one of the functions of retreats is to help people to relax. And uh, it's fairly epidemic in our society, and maybe contagiously epidemic, to, be, to do too much and to be overcommitted and involved and do and and even people who don't do a lot of kind of conventional things, some people are on their computer a lot nowadays, and it's not uncommon for people to come and talk to me about computer addictions that they have. It's hard to get off. And, um, and, uh, and many times we get alienated from ourselves, and we're always doing and active and busy. And so the first thing that many people find coming on retreat, it gives them the chance to recover. And it's not uncommon the first days of retreat for people just to get rest. They need to sleep a lot and nap a lot. Uh, America, most Americans need sleep more than they need med- meditate. And uh, so you know, they come to meditation retreats and partly they're catching up. But it's ca- the catching up is not just, you know, conventional sleepiness, but there's often a deep weariness from, sometimes it can be a lifetime long, from how their mind works. Some people's minds are incredibly busy, Some, like uh, trying to figure things out, trying to protect themselves, trying to... Um, be concerned what they want and get. Um, I remember, a little bit of a side, but I remember when I was, I used to love to go to bookstores. When I was, especially, I remember living in Berkeley many years ago. I was a long-haired hippie, walked around barefoot, and, you know, I would, went into bookstores. And actually, going to Moe's bookstore changed my life. It kind of set me in this direction that I'm in now. I'm here because of Moe. <laughs> and um, the... Um, but I used to leave bookstores uh, exhausted. And it took me a while to realize the reason I was exhausted was I wanted all these books. And I'd go look on the shelves, I want that, I want that, I want that, I want that. And I didn't have any money, so it didn't help. You know, to have, so I had all the desires, but no ability to fulfill the desires. And so it was that constant desiring that made me exhausted. And um, <clears throat> so people can live that way. Maybe not the same intensity as my wanting books back then, but... But um, So coming on retreat gives us a chance to rest a weary heart, a weary mind, and a very important thing to do. Retreats are also places where our life catches up to us, or we catch up to our life, whichever way you like. 
some people are so busy and so active, um, or so defended or so alienated from themselves or not in touch, that they don't really know what they're feeling. They haven't had a chance to process some of the issues and activities and situations of their life. Uh, it's not uncommon for people sometimes to um, uh, move on after a time of great loss and never process their grief, never a chance to grieve properly. And uh, I've had someone come to retreat to, um, uh, you know, 10 years later, hadn't processed the grief of her son. And finally, 10 years later, they took the retreat to stop and be still enough to make space for this to come forth. Some people don't know that they're so tired. And so the retreats, kind of like retreats, sometimes like you're running and running and running, you run into a wall, and then you find out you've been running. And so, you know, we run in many ways, but um, one way or other, I think that there's a disconnect between the momentum of our life and our body or our heart that hasn't caught up and hasn't really, not really present for it. I saw it uh, in a very subtle, maybe silly way, but for me it was an important way. Uh, my first, uh, no, my second Vipassana retreat in Thailand. Um, an important moment in the retreat was uh, going to lunch. <laughs> and you had to walk through Swan Mok, the monastery, to get to the lunch place, kind of a little bit long walk. And maybe because I was in retreat, I noticed that I was pretty centered in my body during much of the retreat, except when it was time for lunch. And then I was ahead of myself. Both my body was leaning forward, but kind of my energetic body or my sense of body or my sense of attention was projected in front of me. And, you know, it's, you know, there I was able to come back. But it's possible to be ahead of oneself or kind of disconnected or behind oneself and not really present. And retreats are one of the great places to show up for oneself and find out what's going on here. And so that's a third function, is to really find out what's going on here. So we find out kind of the surface of what's going on, the unprocessed, the unresolved issues. But we also get to uh, discover some of the deeper things that are going on um, for us. Um, With time, if we pay attention, you get to see some of the operating principles upon which our mind, our heart, are kind of, that we operate on. Uh, The kind of the software of, kind of how we're programmed, how we're programmed in a sense. And we get programmed very early in life. Uh, you know, sometimes it's so early, it's like, you know, with the mother's milk almost, or, you know, uh, or the lack of it, that we didn't get breastfed or something. And, um, and the stories that I've heard on retreat of how people are raised or not raised has informed me about how I want to raise my kids. I mean, this, you know, I, I was heart, it's break, broken my heart so many times to hear what happened. Uh, most recently, there was a woman who said that she grew up, from the youngest age she can remember, her mother telling uh, her that, saying repeatedly that um, if people really understood what, went, what was going on in this world, they'd commit suicide. Imagine if, you know, a three, four, or five-year-old girl being told that over and over again. That's, not, that's, a, that's a powerful thing. Or someone, when she was four, um, the mother packed her bags and said, I'm leaving, walked out the front door. And she wasn't really, but she wanted to make an impression. She walked around the block with the suitcases. But that was, for, you know, affected that person for a lifetime. Or alcoholic parents, you know, and they're always fighting, and you have to cope with that, and that's it's a whole complex. 
there's a whole series of things that can happen. Um, uh, I know when I was, again, it's kind of a silly personal story maybe, but I remember when I was in seventh grade, I took an art class. I didn't know anything about art. I wasn't even interested in art particularly, but I took this art class in, in school. And I was drawing, happily, and the teacher came up to me and said, Gil, you have no artistic ability. <laughs> now, I didn't care. It didn't, it didn't affect me emotionally. I, you know, I don't, you know, I didn't know I was supposed to. So I didn't have any effect. It didn't affect me emotionally. But she was the authority. So what she said must be true. And so for the next some six, seven years, it was just kind of built into my self-identity that I had no artistic ability. And it only took, finally in college, I was kind of, my artistic ability was pulled out of me by a friend. And it turned out I had some. But, um, so, so sometimes on retreat, in the, because we're paying attention, because we're getting quiet, we start sometimes noticing the deeper messages, the conditioning that's operating kind of sometimes underneath the surface thought, the surface thought, the obvious kind of thing, what we're thinking about. We can see underneath there's a layer of thinking which is the root for how the surface thoughts, uh, thoughts going on. A common, um, uh, relatively common observation that people make about themselves, not everyone by any means, but I don't know, certainly a good percentage of people, is they'll come to one of the meetings with the teachers on retreat and say, I had no idea that I'm always afraid. It's pervasive in my life and it influences everything I do, but I had no idea it was operating because they haven't had a chance to pay, like, look at themselves like with a microscope or look carefully to see what's, you know, or, uh, what's going on, to be quiet enough and focused enough uh, or still enough to see. One of, the, one of the ways that re, uh, the kind of retreats help us to see, I like to say it helps us, retreat or meditation really helps us when it doesn't work. And uh, this is really good news when it doesn't work, in case if it doesn't work for some of you. A few of you? Just a few of you? <laughs> I think it doesn't work for almost anyone. And that's the secret. <laughs> and it's a good thing, because if it worked, if meditation worked beautifully, if you could just sit down and close your eyes and enter into some beautiful bliss state and float on a cloud and, wow, this meditation is the best thing and that's, you know, you're set for life, right? It wouldn't be so good. I like to say that meditation begins when it doesn't work. Because when it doesn't work, your idea of what's supposed to work, then you get to look at yourself and see why doesn't that work? What's going on? So on retreat, you're trying, for example, to be present maybe for your breath. So you come back to your breath. Your mind wanders off. You come back to your breath. The mind wanders off. You come back to the breath. Maybe you can stay for a while. That's nice. But eventually the mind wanders off. You get quieter and calm. That's nice. And your mind wanders off a little bit. And you keep keeping back. And after a while, that movement going back and forth, you start noticing the patterns of where you go away to. And because you start getting a little bit calm, you start knowing the underlying patterns, like the, little bit the, the underlying programming for how you think and believe and assume and react and feel. And so you say, well, I had no idea how common this was, how pervasive this was. I'll give you an example of a woman on retreat who um, said, you know, I'm, uh, I'm really, she was sitting a long retreat and she said, and she'd been a practitioner, she'd been on many, many retreats. And she said, you know, I have, 
there's always uh, music and songs going on in my head while I'm on retreat. And I've talked to a lot of teachers about it, and they give me advice, but it doesn't help. <laughs> it's all this song. And, um, and so I asked her, why don't you look and see what happens just before the, the music begins? She came back about, a, I don't know, four, five, six days later, and said, I noticed what happens. And then I realize now it's this pattern my whole life. What happened, what I noticed on retreat is whenever there's a transition on the retreat, I start singing songs. And it's a way that I, I feel actually uncomfortable with transitions. Even trans- transition like the end of the meditation to going to the meal or waking up and coming to the meditation hall. Any, anything's a transition. And I feel very subtly uncomfortable. And this is a woman who's very competent, very capable, uh, who's managed her life beautifully and been a teacher for other people in many ways. And you, I never would have guessed that was there. But because she's on the retreat, you look and look and look and look and see. She says, oh, transition. And she realized that's been true. When I was a kid, my life was difficult. There were a lot of challenges, especially with transitions with my family. And I used to comfort myself with song. And the retreat showed it to them. For me, my first uh, long retreats, uh, I was a little bit um, maybe satisfied with my ability to meditate before I went to the retreat. Oh, I can do this. This is great. And, um, you know, I would sit down and get calm and kind of feel a little bit concentrated and, wow, I can really do this. And so then I went on retreat and I said, I'll just do it better now. (laughs) And so I... um, sat down to do what I usually do and get concentrated and the first day went well, I can do it. And then the second day, I couldn't get any more concentrated. Matter of fact, I would get less concentrated. So of course, the solution is to try harder. So I tried harder. And the harder I tried, the less concentrated I became. And the more scattered and fragmented and tense I got. And it, got, it was really ugly. You know, you know, you, not your common association of a calm, relaxed meditation retreat. It was like war in there. And um, trying and trying. And, um, and there was nothing I I mean, I tried everything I could think of. Nothing worked. Everything. And finally, I was so utterly, thoroughly, completely miserable and in pain. I couldn't do anything more. So it wasn't like I could do anything, so I just gave up. It was hopeless. Finally, I admitted to myself, it's completely hopeless. And that's when the retreat began. And um, when I stopped making this kind of selfish or, you know, this kind of... And what I couldn't see in my daily sittings at home was that I was making kind of effort that was greedy, was kind of with expectation... And the reason I thought I was doing well was at home, I was just sitting for around half an hour or something at a time. I was just unwinding because I was sitting still. And I, 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 I took credit for it. <laughs> you know, I thought I was getting concentrated because I was such a good meditator. I was just kind of basically unwinding from the you know, stressful day. And, uh, and, so, and so, you know, so what I had to give up was a sense of me doing it. And me, with expectation that I was going to get somewhere. And because the way I held that didn't work. 
So retreats were very important because it highlighted that how I practiced in my daily life was a little bit off. And I wouldn't have seen that, I think, for a long time if I kept practicing my daily life the way I was. So our retreats are times to see more deeply what's really going on. And so much so that sometimes I tell people that retreats are where you find out what's true. They're truth-tellers. And um, one of the common places I will advise people to go on retreats is, uh, some of you have raised your hand and said you've been on a lot of retreats, right? Some people will say, well, I don't need to go on retreats anymore. I'm doing fine. You know, I'm practicing every day. I, I know I practice in everyday life and all my activities, and I'm pretty happy and everything's going well, and I don't think I need to go on retreats. I said, no, that's, that's great. Maybe you don't. Maybe you've practiced and matured a lot in this practice, and I'm happy for you. But you know, at least you know, maybe once a year, or you should, you should at least go back once and test it and find out. Because it's very common to fool oneself. And again, to assume that one thing is going on, and really something else is going on. And retreat is where you find out what's really happening. Uh, and sometimes you find out that there's something difficult you've been ignoring. But sometimes what retreat does, what it uncovers is your beauty. Something really beautiful and precious. Your goodness is there. And I've been astounded. You know, when I started doing retreats, one of the things that kind of blew me away that I wasn't prepared for was the level kind of a purity or beauty or goodness that can be inside of me. Not that I, you know, think I'm so good, but but as my mind got quiet and as kind of began to let, leave myself alone and kind of let the kind of heart begin to come bubble up, then um, I was really amazed. And eventually, in some of my longer retreats, uh, I felt I saw some things in the capacity of the mind or awareness or the heart that and I still to this day hold to be the most beautiful thing anybody could ever see. There's nothing, no Grand Canyon, no sunset, nothing as beautiful as a, as a heart that's set free or a heart that's filled with love and compassion or it's well practiced. And I remember some of my earlier retreats when I was beginning to kind of touch into that sometimes a little bit. Um, <clears throat> I, I had these wonder, uh, wonderful um, returning memories. Sometimes we have, you know, sometimes difficult memories come, come up, but sometimes uh, forgotten memories of uh, earlier in our life come back that uh, are really precious. And so as I was beginning to touch into this inner goodness, I remembered, oh, what it was like. Oh, that was at that time where I felt really safe, where I was in bed and felt just so at home in the universe, and it felt so good. And I'd forgotten how good it was to feel like you're at home in the universe. And so it was kind of, kind of nice to, have, to, kind of be, to have, that, have those things come back. Meditations also, retreats as a meditation generally, is it's a time to um, cultivate capacities that we have. It's not just a matter of letting go and discovering what's there, but it's also a big part of Buddhism is, is cultivating capacities we have. So we have capacities for greater love, capacity for greater uh, uh, compassion, capacities for greater concentration, greater mindfulness. And we don't just leave this to chance that, you know, if I just kind of relax enough, it'll just be be there. But we actually put some effort into strengthening this like we would a a muscle. And I think it's one of the beautiful offerings of Buddhist practice is that that we can, uh, that the human mind, the heart, is malleable. 
it's a process, it's not a thing. And because it's a process, it's possible to shape that process. And shaping is to cultivate it. And you can cultivate in ways which are more uh, useful for you and for others. So part of retreat is to cultivate, develop. And the most common one we think many people think about when they think of retreats, meditation, is cultivating um, strength of mindfulness and strength of uh, concentration. But then there's also a function of meditation and retreats is to learn to let go. And um, it's, I think it's one of the great beautiful lessons that anybody needs to learn to be a level wise and effective life is to learn to let go well. Some people get frightened and upset when they hear that because they think, oh, these Buddhists, they're such party poopers. And then they, pretty soon he's going to start talking about suffering again. <coughs> you know, and, and then he's letting go and you know, he's a renunciance. And, you know, it's kind of like... There's no fun in Buddhism. But the funnest thing is to let go well. It's really good. Because uh, there's so much joy, so much beauty, so much freedom that's available on the other side of letting go. So it's obvious that letting go is good when you, know, when you feel you're, you're clinging to something and you feel the pain of that. And it's good to let go. And so retreats are places to learn to let go and, and to realize that there's life after letting go. So, for example, we learn to let go of television. There's usually not any television on retreats. <laughs> usually. I can now, many years later, because now I'm sure James has changed and grown and matured, maybe. But it was teaching retreats with James that for a short while I became a 49ers fan. <laughs> Because we would teach games, we would teach games, we'd teach <laughs> retreats in Santa Sabina during the se- that time when the 49ers were doing really well and, and you know, you know it, there was a teacher room with a TV and the 49er games on and we would sit there and, just okay to say? <laughs> so usually there's no TV or most people give up TV. <laughs> And uh, nowadays, people uh, give up, um, ho- uh, supposed to give up being plugged, plugged in, computers and all that. And in fact, this is such an important problem, I feel, that in the last year, I've noticed how difficult it is for people to get unplugged. It's uh, like an addiction. It's really hard. I mean, there's, people have really good reasons, phenomenally good reasons, why they have to be, have access to their telephone, their texting, to their computer, as if humanity never managed this before. <laughs> and um, so what I'm going to propose to the people who are in charge for our retreat center, now no, none of you will come, maybe, is the people who come have to be committed to unplugging. And I don't know if, well, you know, you have to check your guns and your cell phone in at the desk when you come. <laughs> And uh, I don't know how we'll do it, but I think it really has to be a high, I'd like to have a really high commitment that uh, this is not a place. And we'll set up a system for emergency phone calls so that they can come through and easy and sure or something. But I think that uh, the the opportunity to really be unplugged, to really step back from our life as usual, is so, so important. And without having a chance to do that, um, the transformative potential retreats is diminished dramatically. So we learn to let go. And so what do we learn to let go of? An interesting place to, if you've, if you've never been on retreat or if you remember your first retreat, silent retreat, a really fascinating place where a lot of the action goes on in retreat is the dining room. 
And um, it, uh, so one of the actions that goes on in the dining room is that you have a table. You sit down at a table with four, five, six, eight other meditators, and they're mindfully eating their food, mindful eating, which means they're looking at their food, and they're slowly eating, and they don't do what is expected in normal, ordinary society. In any other place, if you sit down at a table with other people, they would look up and say hello, or look up and greet you. They wouldn't look, keep, keep looking down and be silent. In fact, in, out in the world, if people keep, when you sit down and everyone silently looks away, it's bad news. <laughs> and it's not uncommon for some people to carry with them into retreat the old assumptions and old conditioning, the social conditioning, social assumptions, what it means to be connected to other people, how we're connected. Some people are so tuned in to the social life that they're always orienting themselves to how they are in relationship to other people. And... Um, and uh, what are people thinking of me? How do I make a good impression? How do I protect myself? Who do I want to, what do I want to get from different people? It's a very, the social world, as you know, is very complex. And so, so for some people, when, they, when they're new on retreat, it's a bit of a shock to go to the dining room and all their feelings of shame or embarrassment or inadequacy can come up because people are mindfully eating and not giving them the usual cues that telling them, you're, you're fine, you're connected. And that plays, and that's very useful to see because in many ways on retreats, some people will start seeing how much they're driven by their cons- social concerns, their desires to be seen and loved and liked and connected or protected or all of these things going on. And one of the great advantages of retreat is to put that to rest. And eventually, people who do enough retreats or even first retreat find after a while it's such a relief to be able to put the social life, this interactive, interrelational life, to rest for a few days, to give it a vacation. And once it's on vacation and you're not thinking that way, then you have a chance to see yourself in a deeper way. And you can also begin to let go of things that may be useful to let go of. So television, computers, cell phones. Um, Some people use retreats to let go of uh, cigarettes. Some people use it to let go of alcohol to free themselves of it. Some people have certain patterns of behavior that's not helpful and useful for them. Um, some people come to retreats in order to deal with particular issues they want to kind of somehow kind of loosen up around so they're not so in the grip of this to let go and, and, and to work on that for a while. And this movement of cultivating strengths, mindfulness and concentration, and cultivating capacity <coughs> to let go leads eventually to um, having much deeper insights into this world we live in. Uh, not, biolog- not biographical insights where we just see ourselves, uh, you know, how, what, why, you know, my parents did this and therefore I am this way, but we start having insight into what's more universally true and for all human beings, the common humanity we all have. And it's transformative to see that. And the function of Vipassana retreat is to actually have these deep insight into the universal aspects of our human life. And as we do that, then the ability to let go in useful ways increases more and more. And to be able to liberate the, the heart, the mind, is one of the most beautiful things a person can do. And I believe is one of the really great ways to then to come back to our world to be of service to the world. The world needs people who are purifying, clarifying, understanding themselves so that we can be more effective uh, support for this world that needs us. So there's... 
I could go on and on because I'm so enthusiastic about retreats and how beneficial they are for people. But I'll stop now. But there's so many, many, many ways in which people are benefited from being on retreat. And as a teacher, you get to see that. And it excites me to no end uh, that um, we have available to us here in the Bay Area in America such amazingly powerful um, opportunities that Spirit Rock has, IMS has, and now we're going to have down there in Scotts Valley. I believe that just as much as the United States government preserves <laughs> national parks, because it's so important to preserve these parks, I think the U.S. government should have spiritual parks, retreat parks, because we have this beautiful inner nature that needs to be protected and developed just as much as the nature of uh, the Sierras and places like that. So um, we have this opportunity to do this now down there in Scotts Valley. And uh, I hope that once we're up and going, that uh, some of you will come down. You're all welcome to come and join us and uh, come and sit retreats. So thank you. Just uh, before we open it up to questions, comments, um, in in hanging out with you, I, I was really inspired by how inspired you are uh, about this vision that that you have for uh, your retreat center. I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about your vision. Okay. So the talk I gave was more than kind of the more general of things that are, you know, how retreats are for many people who practice them. But one of the things that um, I see that our opportunity we have in creating this uh, small retreat center, it's 40 people, is to, is to, we have a blank canvas upon which we can, uh, we're not beholden to any model about how retreats uh, need to be done. And so I'm really uh, trying to spend a lot of time uh, and talking to other people about how to be uh, creatively see if there are other ways of doing it which would be useful and uh, and maybe important to offer. Um, so, for example, uh, we are dedicated to offering the treats for free, so on Donna. So that's an odd thing. I mean, they, I mean actually, it's quite successful. Actually, more retreats are, are, are taught in the United States for free, Vipassana retreats, than are, are where they have to pay because of the Guenka people. There's, they offer a lot of retreats. They have centers all over the country. And uh, so they've shown that it's possible. And uh, so we're just kind of tagging along with that idea. And the idea is to offer it for free, retreats. And um, because... Uh, what I've seen, I've seen how beneficial it is and how supportive it is for people to practice a dharma in an environment where clearly it's set up to uh, uh, environment of goodwill, of generosity and gratitude, which I think come forth very strongly in the dana system. It does in the other system too, at Spirit Rock. Every time I go to Spirit Rock, I can feel the tremendous goodwill and, and generosity that's embedded and infused and up there. And... Um, it's just really the best thing to do, I think, is to practice in that kind of environment. And then um, we, I spent a fair amount of time thinking about the right size for a retreat center we wanted. And I thought it was important to have a, a retreat center was big enough that there could be two teachers teaching. So they're supporting each other and the synergy and all that. 
But I didn't want one that was so big that uh, we couldn't have volunteers in a, or volunteers running the retreat center, and also a, a, a too big, so it didn't feel like a sense of community. And I very much like the idea, try to run a sense of community that not of the people who come to a retreat feel like they're helping to create the retreat together. They're kind of like family kind of feeling. They we're here together. And, um, <clears throat> and as much as I love Spirit Rock and I love teaching the large retreats there, it's very easy at Spirit Rock to sit in the back and not really feel you know, so connected to the overall community in a strong way. And... Um, so I thought, I thought that, you know, 35 to 40 people, retreatants, was kind of like maybe a nice kind of balance between, you know, small enough to maybe help to create a sense of community or family feeling or something, but big enough to have two teachers. Also, um, um, I would like to experiment with a way that, of offering retreats or, organ- or staffing them, which uh, I, w- I was familiar with from the Berkeley Zen Center here. You know, I was a Zen student for many years. And um, the model there is that everyone who at the retreat is doing the retreat. And so um, uh, it means that uh, the, uh, the, the people who cook the food in the kitchen are just as much doing the retreat as the people who are so-called, you know, on retreat. Actually, there's no one who's not on the retreat. And the, but the, the person, the head cook, is one of the most senior practitioners there. And it's seen as a kind of a teaching position. It's kind of like a privileged position. It's kind of like, um, it's a very important role because it creates the, a container and a context and a certain kind of teaching for the overall practice of the retreat, how it's done in the kitchen, how people work. And so I would, lo- I would like to try, I'm going to see if we can kind of do, replicate the same kind of thing where we have a simple enough menu of food that it's relatively easy to make the food that has to be for the retreat that the retreatants themselves can cook the food and still stay in the flow of being on retreat and meditation and like a yogi job. But, um, but then we'll have one uh, kitchen teacher. Maybe one of you will come. At the Zen Center, you show up and they tell you you are. That's your assignment. And I, I don't know if we'll do that but exactly that way. But, but uh, um, So the idea is that uh, the manager the cooks and the people staffing the retreat are just as much part of the retreat as everybody else. And with the hope that everyone with time feels a sense of ownership and responsibility or, or, or connection to the place they come to practice. It's been my approach ever since the beginning of our time in, in Redwood City, Palo Alto, that it's very meaningful for those who want to. It's very meaningful to take responsibility for the place you practice in you do your spiritual practice in. And so, from the very beginning, what used to be, we were so simple back in the Palo Alto days, that the only two things we needed to do was to op- unlock the door to the church room and someone put out the flyers in Spirit Rock. And it was, it was so easy for me to do it. But I thought it's really important that people feel responsibility. So I, I asked, anybody want to be the key holder? Anybody want to carry the, put out the flyers? Because I wanted to give people the opportunity to take responsibility for where they practice. So the same thing down there. I think that we want to have a culture where that kind of uh, is able. We can do that. So I mean, that's so I'm inspired by that, uh, and uh, it's kind of like continuing the how IMC Inside Meditation Center Redwood City is run, which has become one of the great bright lights of my life. That um, it operates all on volunteers. Everyone's, you know, I, I show up sometimes and 
something was taken care of I didn't, didn't know needed to be taken care of. Someone took the initiative. Someone said, oh, that needs to be done. And so they go and do it. Because there's a lot of people there who feel like this is our place. We take responsibility. We share in the responsibility. And so it's all run by volunteers completely. And it's all, we, there also we offer everything free. Nothing's, we never, never charge. And, but be, just before we bought the church, that's our center now, um, Redwood City, many people came to me and said, Gil, you can't do it. You're going to have to someday have a paid staff. You can't do this without a paid staff. No way. Big church. No, not a big, but it's smaller than this. But a church, a building, you know, many programs. You have to. And I said, no, we're not going to do it that way. And um, so now we've lasted 10 years that way. So I don't know how long we have to do it to be successful, but <laughs> to prove we can do it. But so now, you know, so it's kind of a little bit counterintuitive to do the same thing for a retreat center. But I believe that if we hold the course, hold that vision and stay kind of, that uh, that will uh, uh, require <laughs> us all who are involved um, to be really creative to figure out how to make it work. Because it's really easy to see how it shouldn't work. And that limits the creativity. But if, we, if this is what we're going to do, then we'll, we'll, um, you know, we'll figure it out. Anyone who has a question for Gil would be about the center, about retreat practice, or practice in general. So you're past, uh, you pass this by. Oh, I should say, because you've remembered, you know, so we found this property in Scotts Valley, um, and the person who found it is sitting right there. <laughs> the, uh, Kim McLaughlin and uh, Kim is actually uh, was on the search committee and she lives here in Berkeley and, uh, and uh, she's been very instrumental and I'm very grateful for Kim for all you've done for us and making all this possible thank you Gil this question is about uh, your own uh, attachment my attachment to the creation of this retreat center and because in your speaking I'm inspired as you're, as you're speaking um, and just wondering when you have this vision of something that you think is the right thing, it's a good thing it's going to help a lot of people and maybe realize of uh, uh, realize a vision of your own of the way people can collaborate together to create, some, create something beautiful um, in your own creation of this, have you come across your own kind of attachments and desires and your, around the building of something? Yeah, and if you ha- it, sure, and sure, of course. <laughs> um, uh, I think my biggest kind of hang-up or attachment around it is I feel really responsible for the, to the people who are making donations, and that we have to do, be really careful and responsible how we do it so that it honors that. And so, I mean, that's an obvious thing to point to be, but I'm, I'm a little bit, it makes me, I feel, like, I feel like I cling to it some and probably more than I should. That's one thing. Um, 
And, um, but, you know, uh, I, you know, attachments happen, but I try to work with them, and it's a very important, I think, especially for a teacher, to try to be very sensitive. I think it's very important for a teacher, especially doing something like this, uh, to try to be really clear and honest about where we're coming from and what we're doing. Um, and and it's, I feel it's my job, because it's really easy to get attached to for many people, and including people in my community. Um, a lot of it because of a sense of responsibility. It's a big responsibility to do this. So, uh, I've, uh, I tr- uh, so for, I'll give you an example of our IMC. We've tried to create, build it up from the very beginning in such a way that um, we can be an opportunity-based organization and not a needs-based organization. So we try not to have any needs, but we try to have a place where peop- we have opportun- opportunities can be fulfilled if people want to help us do it. And of course, we have we, 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 conventionally you can say we have needs. We have needs for pay electricity, the bills, and different things, right? But um, we try not to operate from that. And I, I regularly tell people, and I think that maybe some of the IMC people are maybe a little bit annoyed with me, but I, re- 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 I, I often tell them that... Um, uh, we don't need to do what we're doing. We don't need to have a retreat center. It's an opportunity, but there's no need. And once you have the state of need, then you know it's easy to get hooked in. But there's no need for it. You know, there's no obligation to have a retreat center. There's no obligation to be a teacher, and no obligation to you guys to practice. There's no need at all. Please go home. <laughs> but there's a great opportunity here. And if you're inspired by the opportunity, then stay. You know, but no, no one's required to stay. And uh, so, so what I tell people also at IMC is that uh, we're collapsible. You know, we don't have to, we don't have to do all the stuff we do. And it, it, you know, people often want to maintain the institution. It's gotten a certain size, and let's keep it. We can't, we can't. Coll- I tell you, we're collapsible. The only thing we need is we need the key to the front door, and we need a really good treasure. So, that, so I say that regularly because I believe that. I think it's really important so we don't hold it too tight. And so we, we can go. It's okay to go, to disappear, you know, if, we, if our time has come and not to hold on beyond the time. But as part of, but in order to have that kind of attitude and to be, be able to stay relaxed and not get attached, um, it takes a lot of care, actually. We have, a, we have a relaxed way down there, but it takes a lot of care to maintain it the way it is. And one, one, for example, one of the things we do is so before we bought our church 10 years ago, uh, I insisted that we couldn't buy, buy the place until we could keep in reserve a very big chunk of cash. So we had enough, mortga- enough money to pay our mortgage for three or four years if we got no, no donations at all. Because I didn't want us to be up against the wall financially to feel, oh, we're running out of money. Now we've got to put on more programs. We've got to ask people, you know, and so we've always had this nice buffer or cushion or something, contingency fund, so that protects us so we can stay relaxed and not get attached and cut up. And that's been a very important part, and we've always maintained that. And now with the retreat center, it's getting a little more complicated, but we've been very careful uh, with how we're getting, doing it so that... Um, um, so one of the things, so we didn't buy the property until we could buy it uh, outright. So, we, so it's basically we have a little we have a three hundred thousand dollar mortgage, which <clears throat> is a little story, but but uh, you know it's it we um, basically it's paid for, so we don't have to worry, and because we're a church, we don't pay taxes, 
And, um, and so that, that allows us to be relaxed. And then we bought a building, you know, so that, and also as we, we like to raise a lot of money because the opportunity is great. We don't need your money. I, I, once, I, I, once in my life when I was an IMC, when we, st- we were going to start offering our retreats for free about seven years ago, before that, we charged a little bit for retreats, but we started offering retreats for free. <clears throat> I called up a little foundation. So a colleague of mine said, call up this foundation. So I, so I called up this guy. He said, I'm Gil, you know, and, and I'm calling you to ask me for, for money. What's it for? Oh, we want to give retreats away for free. And he said, that's kind of odd. What, what's, that, what's that about? And, um, and I explained, you know, what we did. And, and, and then it's, in the course of it, I said, you know, but we don't need your money. It's just a good opportunity. And he said, people never say that. <laughs> They're always telling me why they need the money. So I said, send me a, send me a very simple one-page proposal. Don't do a big thing. Just And um, so I did, and he sent me more money than I asked for. So, um, <clears throat> so then we retreat center, so we basically own the property. And then... Um, well, now we're raising money for this great opportunity, but we're being very careful how we're, how we're setting it up so we don't not ahead of ourselves and get in financial trouble. And so we can be relaxed. So we have phases in mind. We have all kinds of ways, plans of how to do this. Hopefully we're doing it, our thinking is careful. And that way, if there's a little bit of attachment or some attachment comes along, it'll be easier for us to be look at it and let go. Is that okay as an answer? Thanks, Are you going to have a barn raising with your sangha to, to build the... A barn raising. Sangha? Yeah, there might be some work days, but what we've been told by a number of different people is that the, the, the barn raising is a huge insurance liability. And so and we're going to have to get... The, the level of work we want to do requires uh, professional contractors. And it's very difficult for them to have volunteers coming in and being there and their liability and our liability. So that... The level of barn raising, I think we won't have a lot of, unless, you know, if, if one of you is a contractor or a plumber and is, has your own, your own, you know, insurance, you can come down and help us. But, but we'll have some work days and we're going to have an open house on July 16th, Saturday. So if some of you want to come down and take a look, it's going to be from 10, 10 to 5, you can come down and look at it. And so and also if you go on our website, then if we do have like work day or something, it'll be listed there. What's the website? Well, uh, well, we have our own website for the retreat center now called the insightretreatcenter.org. And, um, and uh, I think eventually I hope to have a better name. The reason why we come up with these names like the Insight Meditation Center and the Insight Retreat Center is because of a lack of imagination. <laughs> 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 but not from a lack of effort or trying. <laughs> But, you know, finally we give up. and it's, you know, So we're hoping that once we have the property, we can have a more interesting name than that. But that's what it is now. should probably uh, close, so how much we pass the passive yeah. Yeah. So, um, wouldn't that be cool to sit on a retreat completely on a Donna um, 
gift generosity to uh, to those sitting and they have uh, an opportunity to offer generosity to to support their practice and and other people's practice um, it's really wonderful yeah. I, I think of spirit rock and and other retreat centers as these little beacons of consciousness in uh, in a crazy world and uh, and here's the birth of of a really uh, beautiful vision and uh, beacon of consciousness so once again I, I really encourage you when you when you put something in the basket you know the two or three dollars or five dollars or ten dollars or how, however much that you put in feel the the joy of generosity of supporting that and uh, I do hope you uh, you take one of those um, uh, information packets and uh, and we can all go down and sit at the center. Mm, that'd be cool. So uh, thank you so much for coming and for who you are and what you create from your love of the Dharma. Thank you. Mm. So we'll, we'll just close with a, a short loving kindness. Just feeling the blessing of Sangha, of community. We're all here because we love the truth and love goodness and want to make a, the world a better place. Just feeling the blessing of that. Send some kindness towards yourself. May I feel all the goodness that's inside and share my love well. May I see through the confusion and fear to the place of understanding and wisdom. And may I realize the highest happiness possible. And then to extend that to everyone here and outward to all beings everywhere. May all realize their true nature and share their love well. May all experience real peace and true understanding and compassion. And may our coming here together be of benefit not only to ourselves, but to everyone in our lives, and ripple out to be of benefit to all beings everywhere. May all be happy peaceful, and free. Thank you very much for coming. Thanks, Gil. <clears throat> Keep us posted.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.